morning, church, and welcome to those of you joining on the live stream, and welcome to parents, grandparents, family for the baby dedication. I know we're excited. I'm sure you're excited. The babies are excited. Uh, it's going to be a good time. We'll get to that um, at the end of our service. And a quick report, um, Friday night we did an outreach. There was a worship night and an outreach afterwards. And uh, I just want to tell you, it was, a, it was really encouraging. Uh, there was 15 of us, roughly, that went from here up to UC campus. And while we were there, we went around and we just met students and we uh, offered to pray for them and uh, shared the gospel with several students. And I had some really great connections. And so be in prayer for um, the people that we spoke to because there's some really great connections that we made that night. So um, last week, we started a new series on unity, and we're going to be continuing that. We've got um, a couple more weeks after today well, left in this series. And um, unity is important because we are the body of Christ, and Christ is not divided. So um, we all have different strengths and perspectives, and we need to work together and to, to stay strong together, to be united um, for the overall health of the church body. And so I gave you five building blocks of unity last week. If you remember these, um, the gospel is the foundation of Christian unity. The church builds upon that unity with additional beliefs and commitments. Personal holiness is a catalyst for unity. Suffering is the cost of unity. And often division can be a prerequisite to unity. So uh, we also talked about theological triage. And so we had this chart, um, maybe you still have it, um, but it's, there's a few copies left in the cafe there on the counter. Theological triage that kind of helps us categorize and prioritize different beliefs and commitments that we have and to, to be able to hold those beliefs at the right volume and to know how that, that affects our unity in the church. So there's gospel co convictions, there's church commitments, and then there's matters of conscience. And that's, we're going to land on that third box today, the freedom of the conscience, talking about matters of conscience. So I want to read to you again what uh, we talked about last week about conscience. So here's, here's the box three, freedom of conscience. It said this, members of the same church, so those of us here, members of the same church can charitably disagree on matters of conscience while maintaining unity and close fellowship with each other, which means we should not break fellowship over matters of conscience. Now, um, as we get started here, I've got a, a book I want to give away. This book is called Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ. The book came out a few years ago, I read it a few years ago, and I found it enormously, enormously helpful. And so I'm gonna, I've got three copies that I'm going to give away to this service. And then my policy is if, uh, if you take a book that I give you, then that's your promise to read it. So um, I've got three copies, and so if, you, if you're willing to read it, the first three hands I see, and the lovely and talented Brad Young will hand them out. Jay Williams wants to read it, so give one to him. Uh, somebody else? You got Mike Ferguson, or Mike Fernandez, excuse me. Mike Ferguson's here too, but wrong Mike F. Um, all right, who was the third one? I saw another one. Oh, Jessica Way. All right. You got to read it, and uh, there'll be a, a quiz in two weeks, and an exam in a month, and if you fail, there will be consequences. <laughs> kidding, kidding. All right. This book, it's 142 pages, and so uh, the author is Andy Nasali and another guy whose name I don't remember, um, but it's 142 pages, and the elders, we're going to be reading this book together over the next couple months and discussing it because the concepts are super helpful. All right, the conscience. Let's start with a definition. What is the conscience? 
So you might have uh, a picture that comes to mind like from cartoons. I remember seeing this Tom and Jerry. There's a Homer Simpson version. There's others where you've got, you know, an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other, you know. And it's just kind of like, should I do it or should I not do it, you know. And it's like there, there's temptations, you know, that, that weigh in. It's like that's it's kind of a cartoon picture of the conscience. But here's a um, more accurate definition. Your conscience is your perception, keyword, your conscience is your perception of what you believe to be right and wrong. Your conscience is your perception of what you believe to be right and wrong. So it's like an inner moral compass. So everybody has a conscience. Everybody that's everywhere, we all have a conscience. But for Christians, the Bible tells us that God has written his law onto our hearts, right? And so that means that the Holy Spirit supercharges our conscience and gives us a, an extra ability to discern the will of God by the Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit then will guide our conscience. And the Holy Spirit is sending us messages and signals, and we want to learn to tune in to the frequency that the Holy Spirit is communicating on. And the Holy Spirit will guide our conscience by revealing sin to us, opening our eyes, uh, helping us to, to recognize deeper sins maybe than we even realize that we're there. So whenever you feel convicted about some sin, you have this conviction, um, the Holy Spirit is speaking to your conscience. And we want to be trained in how to listen to the speaking, the leading of the Holy Spirit in that. Now, that doesn't mean that we always get it right, obviously. We don't always get it right. But God is at work, and we can get better. We can train our consciences to better recognize what is God's voice speaking to us. And so we do this by we learn scripture. And as we understand God's word better, and as we're in fellowship with other people, and as we have life experience and we grow in wisdom, our ability to discern the will of God gets better. We, we grow and our conscience gets stronger. We get to know God more. We understand his will better, what pleases and delights him better, what it looks like to follow him. And so that's a process of growing and maturing in the Christian faith. And as we do this, our conscience is always being recalibrated. Now in the church, we're all, we're all at different places in our Christian life. So you have people that are at different stages of growth, right? So you have some people that are brand new to the Christian faith. And so they have the Holy Spirit within them, supercharging their conscience, but their conscience hasn't been instructed a lot because they're newer, right? But you have other people that have been around for a while, and they've received a lot more teaching. And so they, they have, hopefully, a better understanding, a, a more developed conscience. Now, these people that have different convictions that they will arrive at are living side by side in community together. Well, that can cause problems whenever our consciences don't line up. Christian A thinks it's good to do something. Christian B thinks it's bad to do something. And it's the same thing. And so there's, they will arrive at a different conclusion, and that can cause friction and tension, and that can erupt into divisions in the church. Now, in our modern cultural climate, it's ripe for all kinds of divisions. I was talking with Cameron about this earlier this week, and he made a statement. I'm like, i got to write that down and quote him. Uh, but I'm not going to take credit for it because I'm not going to plagiarize you, Cameron. But he said, any issue of conscience has the potential to become a battlefield. And I'm like, oh, yes, that is true. We, we experience that. We live that, right? So the question then is, how do we maintain unity when we so easily disagree about what's right or wrong? 
How do we maintain unity when we so easily disagree about what's right or wrong? That's what Romans chapter 14 is about. And we're going to be going to Romans 14 today. Now, I want to give you a quick context about this chapter. There was a, a controversy that arose in the New Testament church that Paul was writing to. And the controversy was about, is it good or not good to eat meat that was used in a ritualistic pagan sacrifice at a pagan temple? Some thought it was okay, it's just meat. Other people thought, no, it was used in sacrifice to a pagan idol. Well, it can't be okay, so we got to reject that. So you had these two different beliefs. And um, so I have the chart, I think, hopefully that should show up here. What Paul was saying, according to this chart, is that whether or not you eat meat, that's a third box issue. That's over here on the right. That's a third box issue. It's a matter of conscience. Meaning that meat itself has no ethical value. There, there, that's not something that is worth breaking fellowship over. And Paul said, hey, the unity of the church is more important than getting it right or wrong on this particular issue. So it's a third box kind of issue. And so he encouraged him, follow your conscience and don't divide over this issue. And Romans 14 unpacks all of that. Romans 4 teaches us how to preserve unity in the church when matters of conscience are at stake. So let's dig in. I'm going to read the whole chapter of whole chapter of Romans 14, and then two verses of chapter 15. Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, that's a younger Christian, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand." One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. That's important. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide to never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So he's talking about meat again. So here's Paul unpacking his position. There's, it's not a sin to eat the meat. Nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, 
You are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good as, as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Two more verses. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. This is God's word. All right. Three principles of conscience. So what I want to do is give you three principles of conscience, and then I want to apply it to a case study at Christ the King Church. Okay? Here's the first principle. Always do what you think is right. Always do what you think is right. It's a very simple concept, but it's very important. I want to jump over to Hebrews and read to you a text from Hebrews chapter 9. No, he's saying, if, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. He's talking about Old Testament sacrifice. So if the Old Testament sacrificial system was, was beneficial in this way to, to provide some ritual cleanliness, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. A good and pure conscience is a gift of the gospel that we see in Romans, or, uh, Hebrews 9. Jesus died for us, right? So he died for us, and that's to not only be forgiven, but also to feel forgiven. A person with a with a, a good conscience is a person who isn't burdened and weighed down by feelings of guilt. So if you're a Christian, it is not good to be weighed down and burdened with feelings of guilt and shame when you haven't done anything wrong. Because in Christ, your soul is at peace with God. And having been forgiven, having, having received the gospel and you believe that God has forgiven you, then it's not good for us to be weighed down all the time with feelings of guilt. And whenever somebody else's matter of conscience gets imposed on us, then we could be tempted to go against what we think is right, and that could violate our conscience, and that could make us either feel guilty or that could, that could uh, mess with our internal sense of what's right or wrong. So the way you maintain a good conscience is, and avoid a defiled conscience, is to always do what you believe to be the right thing to do. So a person has a good and strong conscience, this is the strong brother, when he or she knows what is right, and they do it, and they're untroubled by guilt. 
A person has a good and weak conscience. So it's a good conscience, but it's a weak conscience. The first one's a good and strong. This one's good and weak. When he or she is misinformed about what is right, but still obeys it. Now, we're talking about a matter of conscience, a, a third box issue. Not a, not a moral imperative, but something that's more of a third box issue. So you see the difference? A good, strong conscience is you know what's right and you do it. A good but weak conscience is you're misinformed about what's right, but you still do what you think is right because you don't know you're misinformed. So as far as you're concerned, you're doing what you believe to be right. And then a person has a seared conscience or a defiled conscience when he or she goes against their conscience and they ignore the inner voice. They ignore their internal compass telling them what's right and wrong. And so we see this this idea working out here in Romans 14 that in matters of conscience, developing these good habits of the heart, of always doing what you believe to be right, that's more important than being technically right. And so our priority as Christians is to always act according to what we believe is the most honoring and glorifying to God thing to do. So this is, we talked about last week, about the importance of a commitment to personal holiness. So it's not like, well, just do whatever you want to do all the time. No, Paul clearly says here that whatever you do, if you eat, eat in honor of the Lord. If you abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord. So whatever it is that you're thinking about that might be this matter of conscience, you can ask yourself, can I do this for the glory of God? Can I dedicate this act or this thought to God as an act of worship? So you're thinking about what brings God glory and honor in this matter of conscience. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is addressing the exact same controversy that erupted in a different church. So 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's a good conscience. So then, to maintain unity in a church, Christians acting in good conscience, we need to mutually respect one another. And that's what we see. Let's go back. I'll read Romans 14, 5 and 6 again. Paul says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another person esteems all days are alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, they both can't be right technically, but as far as the individual is concerned, they should be able to do it with a clear conscience, fully convinced that that is what is most glorifying to God, The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Both are acting in good conscience, and that's a blood-bought gift of the gospel. However, some of our good consciences can be weak and some strong, and the weak ones can grow, and their consciences can be informed and recalibrated. Now, Paul is not excusing the errors of the weak. He's not saying, well, it doesn't matter what they believe. I mean, it matters what they believe. Otherwise, he wouldn't have told us what he believed. It matters. But he's giving us a priority here of the conscience of that weaker brother needs to be protected. We don't want to to wound him with our freedom. So Paul is saying that this weaker brother needs patience and time to grow and to become stronger. So... Here's an example. Let's say you have a weak Christian, a weaker brother. I'm using, tech, I'm using the words that Paul uses here. Let's say you have a weaker brother would say, 
I gave up caffeine for Lent. And I did it in honor, to honor the Lord. I did this to the glory of God. And I think everybody else needs to do the same. And I can't believe all these other people aren't also giving up caffeine for Lent. How dare they drink caffeine during Lent? Don't they care about glorifying God? Now, he's doing something to honor God. That's a good thing. But to try to impose it on others, he's passing judgment on them, right? Now, a strong Christian, a person who has a good conscience, but they're, they're strong, they could say, I totally respect you for doing that. And yes, you are indeed honoring God with that commitment. But you can't make that a rule for everyone. John Calvin, let me read you a quote from John Calvin. He said, among the people of God, there are some who are weaker than others, and unless they are treated with great tenderness and kindness, they will be discouraged and become at length alienated from religion. Those who are strong should spend their labor in assisting the weak, and they who have made the greatest advances should bear with the more ignorant. John Calvin said the same thing. All right, here's the second principle. second principle is be willing to change your mind. Be willing to change your mind. So as we learn the Bible and we grow in Christ and we challenge one another in Christian community, our consciences can get recalibrated. New data, new perspective. We learn, we grow, and we see things differently over time. This is true of every Christian. Whenever you first become a Christian, you may not have a great sense of what's actually truly right and wrong, but the Holy Spirit within you does guide you. And the Holy Spirit is always directing you that whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Now, this can be true especially in the non-essentials because you don't always have Bible verses that you can stick on the non-essentials, right? It's a matter of wisdom and applying Bible principles to real life that aren't directly addressed by Scripture. So naturally, everybody, all of us, we're going to get some things right and we're going to get some things wrong. Every one of us in this room right now is 100% convinced of something and they're totally sure that they're right and we're wrong. We all have at least one, and probably more, but there's something that you are dead certain is correct, and you're wrong about that. But you know what? You don't have to be wrong forever, because the, the Bible is God's word, and God speaks to us, the Holy Spirit informs us, and our convictions can grow and develop, and we can get stronger. So getting back to what Paul is saying in Romans 14, the strong Christian has a theologically informed conscience. He's more mature. He's more taught. The weaker Christian has a theologically uninformed conscience, so he's a little less mature, less taught. But as long as the issue of dispute between them is a non-essential issue, it's not a core teaching of the Christian faith, and it's not a, a commitment of the church body, as long as it's a non-essential issue, and he's, and he's convinced it honors God, both of them should be free to do what they think is most pleasing to God even if they're technically wrong. I'm not talking about sin. I'm not talking about excusing sin or anything like that. I'm talking about something that is a gray area. So in gray areas, we should all be free to do something that's technically wrong, and we can grow, but we can do it to the glory of God, and God acknowledges that, right? So both of them should be welcomed in the church, and this is not something that a church should divide or break fellowship over. So here's the bottom line at this point. A unified church needs to have room for people to be wrong 
about the non-essentials because none of us always gets it right the first time. And for us to grow in Christ and to learn, we need to be able to mature and thrive in an environment of grace. So if you're wrong about something and you're always getting hammered about it, that, that's going to make it difficult because your conscience may not have caught up with everyone else's. Even if you're wrong about something, we need to have space for each other to be wrong. Again, not about issues of sin or key doctrine. We're talking about the gray areas, the third box issues. Here's an example. My great-grandfather. Tremendous respect for my great-grandfather. 102 years old. How old do you live to be? You've heard me talk about Papa Galley before. Um, Papa Galley was a Independent, fundamentalist, King James only, Baptist preacher in the hills of West Virginia where I came from. And uh, he, he was a godly man. And so according to his conviction, he firmly believed that it was a sin to drink alcohol, teetotaler. That was, his, that was his conviction. And to my knowledge, he followed his conscience all of his life. So he never wavered from that conviction. And he did it as an act of devotion to him. If he would have drank alcohol, that would have been a sin, Right? But he didn't. He abstained in honor of the Lord, just like Romans 14 says. Now, because he always did what he thought was right, he was able to go through life with a good conscience. On this issue, it was a weaker conscience, but it was a good conscience. So he was unburdened by feelings of guilt and shame. Even though he was wrong about something, he didn't feel guilty about being wrong about that thing because his conscience was affirming him. And he did it with a heart that truly desired to honor the Lord. Nevertheless, on this issue, he was wrong about that. The Bible does not teach that it's wrong to have uh, have a a, a drink of alcohol. So in this instance, he would have been uninformed, he would have been a weaker Christian. Now let's suppose that out in his wood shop, when Mama Mary didn't know about it, he kept a bottle of whiskey, you know, under the shelf. And every once in a while, he'd sneak out there and, and sip a glass of whiskey when nobody knew about it. If he did that, even though it's not technically a sin, for him it would be a sin because he would be going against conscience. He would not be doing something that he was convinced is right. He's doing something he's convinced is wrong, even though he's wrong about it being wrong. And so he's violating his conscience. And so now when a person violates their conscience, they're cultivating a habit of the heart of disobeying God being naughty, doing something sinful, and being okay with it. So then a defiled conscience is harmful for that reason. You get comfortable with disobedience. Over time, if you develop a habit of going against your conscience, it just becomes more second nature. It becomes like, well, nothing bad happened to me whenever I drank that sip of whiskey, so I'm going to keep doing it. And then maybe that disobedience would bleed out into other areas of his life. And so that's a defiled conscience. He feels, he, he, he learns to not feel bad, to tune out the voice in his head telling him that it's wrong. Now, let's suppose that um, over time, he received more instruction. And through a study of the scriptures, he started to recognize, oh, you know something? The sin isn't having a sip of whiskey. The sin is drunkenness. And that is clearly taught in scripture. And so let's say, okay, I... Let's say he developed a a moral principle then. Okay, there's a little sophistication 
to his theology, towards, okay, there is a degree of excess that is sinful, but there's a degree of moderation that is acceptable with, this, with drinking alcohol. So then his conscience will be getting stronger. He become more informed theologically. And then if he, if he changed his mind, then he could say, you know what? I can with a clear conscience enjoy something that tastes delicious and not feel guilty about it. So if he did it that, if he could freely receive it as a blessing and say, God, I toast to you. I, I delight in you. Thank you for this, this good gift that I can enjoy. He could do it. He could give thanks to God for it and not feel guilty about it at all because his conscience was strengthened with Scripture. So recap. So far, where have we been? Number one, always do what you think is right. But number two, be willing to change your mind because as you grow, you might discover, I was wrong about that thing. And as I understand the Bible more and understand what pleases God more, I can adapt and then my conscience being informed can, can grow along with it and I can get adjusted to this new information, this new, new beliefs. All right, here's the third principle. Third principle, and this, is the, this is the last one. Continue to enjoy fellowship with those who disagree and to pursue building them up in Christ. Continue to fellowship with those who disagree and pursue building them up in Christ. So this is where we're taking, you, you know your convictions. You know what you do. You're following your conscience. You're open to changing your mind, but you know what you believe for now. And then you've got other people out there that think differently than you. And maybe they're judging you for it. Continue to fellowship with them and to pursue building them up in Christ. This is where it becomes an act of love for other people. So there was a social dynamic between the stronger and weaker Christians in Paul's day that was contributing to the disunity of the church. The weaker brother is the brother that typically has more scruples. They're more, they're more uh, rigid with their convictions, right? So they've got non-essential issues, this third box issues, and they promote them to make them test the fellowship in the church, that second box, or maybe they say, well, if you don't agree with me, you're not even a Christian. They promote it to the first box. When really, it's a third box issue. That's a weaker brother. And weak, a, a telltale sign of a weaker brother is they're more judgmental. Why are they more judgmental? It's not merely because, maybe it's just because they just like judging people, but it might be because as far as they're concerned, they're like, I'm keeping the rules. I'm doing what's right. And they're convinced of that. And nobody else is doing the thing that I think is right. Why is nobody else doing this? They're concerned. They're incorrect. But there is some degree of legitimacy to their concern. I mean, being judgmental is the unforgivable sin nowadays. And Paul is saying, hey, we need to be patient with judgmental Christians. Because we're all judgmental at different things. At least some of us. Maybe not you, but... I know, I know my own heart well enough to know that that shows up from time to time. So in his mind, it wasn't a matter of conscience. It was a, it was a moral principle, and he sees other people breaking the rules. So naturally, the stronger brother, so the stronger brother is one who doesn't have that scruple. They're not as rigid about that issue, and they're on the receiving end of the judgment. 
They're the one being criticized and kind of was like, you're, you're kind of lax in your morals there, bro. You know? And so that, the stronger brother resents that. Now, whenever you're judged unfairly for something that is truly a matter of freedom in Christ for you, how do you feel towards the one who is judging you? You despise them, don't you? That's exactly what you do. Whenever we're judged unfairly about a matter that even for you is not only free, but maybe something that you do in honor of God, you've devoted this as an act of worship to God, and somebody's judging you for it, you despise them for that. So the stronger Christian was tempted to despise the weaker, for, weaker brother for being so judgy. So we got a problem, don't we? We've got a judgmental Christian whose scruples is causing him to judge the other guy. And the other guy getting judged, he's like, I'm free in Christ. Why are you judging me? And he despises him for it. The solution is to continue in fellowship, to trust that God is the just judge, and to pursue what builds them up. That's the solution. Let's go back. I've got uh, five different sections of Romans 14 and 15 that I want to read to you again that we've already covered. Now that I've kind of laid the land here, just listen to what Paul says, and you can see these themes kind of coming out the top. Romans 14, verse 3 is the first one. That's the, this is the continue in fellowship part. Let not the one who eats, this is the stronger Christian, let not him despise the younger, judgy, weaker brother, the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains, the younger, judgy, weaker brother, let not him pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? For God has welcomed him. God welcomed the, young, the weaker brother that was incorrect theologically. God's judgment is that there's something right about him. God's grace is upon him. Jesus died for his sins, so we don't break fellowship with him. We welcome him because God himself welcomes him. So if God has already loved and forgiven and welcomed somebody... Nobody else has the right to revoke God's invitation. Here's another text to the same effect. Romans 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Judgy guy and despisey guy. (laughs) Welcome one another because God welcomes you both. The word welcome, that implies table fellowship. That's not just like, welcome. That's like, come over for dinner. Now, verse 1, it says, welcome one another, but not to quarrel over opinions. So it's not, come over and uh, let me share my concerns with you, brother. Brother who I welcome in the Lord. No, it's it's like, welcome, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So invite him over for dinner and hang out and enjoy each other. And just tune out the thing in your mind that annoys you about it. <laughs> That's the first one. Um, first one is continue in fellowship. Here's the second one. D- trust the judgment of God. So Romans 14.10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now that takes faith to trust God to always get it right. God gets it right. And we are not qualified to overrule God's judgment or to pass judgment at all. Here's the third one. Pursue what builds them up. Romans 14, 19. So then, let us pursue 
what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. The word mutual is key. The word mutual means that it's, it's got to be a two-way street. Just like a marriage, it can't be a one-way street. It's got to be a two-way street. It's a mutual upbuilding. Let me give you two caveats to this one. So we're talking about what makes for peace, pursue what builds them up. First caveat, the stronger brother's conscience is not bound by the weaker brother's conscience. So the weaker brother that is more scrupulous cannot say, hey, you're throwing a stumbling block in my path, therefore you need to do what I think you should do. Well, no, that's manipulation and that's a recipe for tyranny. The weaker brother does not get to dictate the terms of what brotherly love or neighborly love looks like. This is an appeal to the stronger brother for what he must do, but not for what the weaker brother gets to impose on the stronger brother, okay? Second caveat, the stronger brother's freedom is not a do-what-I-want-to-do license because the goal is for him to freely express love for his brother. So Romans 15, verses 1 and 2 says this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. It could be tiresome to be judged all the time. And to not please ourselves. So your freedom is not a license to indulge or just do what you want because you just like to do it. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So the bottom line of all this is this. The weaker brother must stop playing the judge. So if you've got scruples, if you can't, if, if, if you've got to determine, is this really a third box issue? If it's a third box issue, then you can't make it a test of fellowship. And you can't make it a, 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 your right to, um, to pass judgment on other people and just make a blanket statement, they're doing it wrong. Secondly, the stronger brother must stop despising others. And recognize being judgy is not the unforgivable sin. It is in our culture because we all want to do what we want. But we have to be patient even with people that are being judgmental. Because judgmental is often a sign of a weaker faith and a person who needs time. They need, they need to be, be able to grow and inform their conscience in an environment of grace. All right, so let's wrap this up. I want to apply what we're talking about this morning to a case study. We've only got one we won't be able to do one, so let's make it a good one, all right? Let's make this a good one. Let's talk about freedom of conscience regarding the coronavirus. It's going to be a good time. And don't worry, you're not going to be upset about this. I hope not. Anyway. <laughs> all right, so I'll just be clear about one thing. The issues surrounding coronavirus are way too complicated to make blanket categorizations of strong brother, weak brother. We cannot do that because it's way too complicated. So whenever we're applying this text, it's not wise to think in strong, weak as personal identities. You can't say, she's the weak one, he's the strong one. We cannot do that. We need to think of this more as patterns of behavior and thought. So we don't wear name tags, and we don't designate you, you know, in planning center as a stronger brother, and there's a check by your name or something. It's, it's patterns of thought and behavior. And on some issues, you might be strong, and on other issues, you might be weak. So it's a case-by-case it's a case thing because we're all in process. So from one issue, you might be a stronger brother, and you might just have total freedom. And another issue, you might be totally the weaker brother, and you're judgy about that one issue. That's your pet issue. So regarding the coronavirus, COVID, these things are very complex. And we can't, 
I think one temptation is to put everything in the third box and say, well, if it has to do with COVID at all, it's just a matter of conscience. Third box, don't touch it. Do what you want. Because the matrix of issues involved are so complicated and it touches pretty much every area of our life. I mean, like, all these things I'm about to mention to you are connected to the coronavirus. Healthcare, science, psychology, mental health, economics, business, media, information, misinformation, sociology, politics, the role of government, the relationship of church and state. Every last one of those are impacted by our society's view of coronavirus, and then that filters down into the local church, local level. So from our three, theological triage chart, these different issues that, that impact our view of coronavirus, we have parts of issues that will land in all three categories. So for example, um, love your neighbor. Is that a matter of conscience? That's a gospel conviction. That's a, Jesus said that is the sum of all Christian ethics. The law and the prophets can be summed up here. Love your neighbor. So that's a gospel conviction. If somebody's like, eh, I don't feel like loving my neighbor today. And I'm like, no, you must repent. Loving your neighbor is a gospel conviction. However, the particular choices that you make, the route you take to love your neighbor, there's going to be matters of conscience there because there's different people with different convictions that have different desires of what you, would, what you might do to love them. And the nature of COVID leans towards a one-size-fits-all answer. But there is no one-size-fits-all answer. So we're always making decisions. And every decision that you make for how you might personally want to love somebody else is going to move you closer to some and away from others. So you can't just say, here's how you love your neighbor, boom. You've got to, everybody do this, problem solved. Well, not necessarily, because you just cast out half the people that think very differently about the best way to love their neighbors. So some people will believe that the best way to love their neighbors is to wear a mask in public, to get a vaccine, to social distance, those, those kind of things. People that are more, more conscious and concerned about the threat of coronavirus. Then you have other people believe that the best way to love their neighbors is to protect their individual freedom of conscience and resist mandates that are one size fits all. Now, personally, I think both positions are valid. I, I don't think that it's wrong to, to do any of the things I just mentioned. I think they're all good things, but the thing is like, once you start, once you choose a particular course, then you're signaling subconsciously to people and people internalize it this way that, oh, you don't care about me. Or, oh, you care about me. All by whether or not you have a mask on your face. And so the, the, th that's valid, right? I mean, like, we all have different views on this. And I don't think anybody's wrong because, uh, about their particular conviction itself. Now, you could be wrong in the way you carry it out. You might be a stronger or weaker brother in the way that you think about it, the way you act about it, the way you respond to it. But the issues themselves both have biblical validity. And they both can be done in ways that honor God. Now, even still, by just giving these two broad categorizations, I'm oversimplifying complicated moral and ethical issues because there are things in all three boxes. Nevertheless, we can apply these principles from Romans 14 and how we deal with COVID. So let me just... Let me just walk through our principles really quick. The first one, always do what you think is right. 
Always do what you think is right. So our policy at Christ the King Church for the gathering, I see it as I look out here. I see different people that make different decisions based on what they think is right. Different people choosing different things because you're acting on your conscience. And I, I know you. I know our church. And I know there are nobody here that doesn't care about honoring God, that doesn't care about the feelings of other people. And so I'm not going to make a blanket judgment about anybody. We should not do that. Just see somebody, you know, like based on how they present themselves at the gathering and, and, and just say, oh, I, you're one of them. Okay. We can't do that. So our policy for our gathering is to, is to lean towards respecting each other's conscience. And the reason for that is because there's just so much that we don't know. There's conflicting information about what we do know. And because of that, and because we all are dealing with different data sets, it just seemed wise to leave it to individual conscience. Always do what you think is right. Second, be willing to change your mind. I have done this many times during the pandemic. I imagine you have too. Initially, last March or February or whatever, I had a certain view. And then over, over the course of the last year and a half or so, my mind has changed on a lot of stuff. And I might have gotten it more wrong than more right. I don't know. But there's just, we're just dealing with incomplete information and the proliferation of data in the world has not contributed to a proliferation of wisdom in the world. So we're all seeing things kind of half, half kind of incomplete. So on the, here's just a few examples of things I've reflected on. Um, there's the duty of Christian love. There's the proper role of government, limits of government authority, the relationship between church and state. Those things impact how we approach policy as a church. Do we do always, like the government, like state of Ohio has a mandate, you know, or do we, I mean, they're just different stories about, th these are complicated issues is my point. And so we need to have room to develop healthy convictions, and we shouldn't always assume that our first instinct is the right one. We should always test it with scripture. And then we continue to fellowship with those who disagree and pursue building them up in Christ. Now, this is vital because, like I said earlier, it's like we can all trust, we know like the people that are part of our church, you love the Lord. You want to honor the Lord. You're committed to Christ and you want to do its best. And so people of good conscience in our church will arrive at different conclusions and see things differently. And we need to be okay with that. So based on that, bottom line is that how we each individually and how we as a church corporately handle coronavirus choices and policy, I don't think I should be a test of fellowship. That's not something to break fellowship over. We respect our consciences. And this was Paul's posture towards Philemon when uh, he appealed to, Paul wrote a letter to Philemon appealing to him for the sake of his runaway slave, Onesimus, Philemon's slave. Sent Philemon back, or sent Onesimus back to Philemon, his master, with this letter. A couple of verses that stand out. Philemon's, uh, Philemon uh, verse 8 Paul says, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, because I know what's right and I can command you to do it, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. And then verse 14, I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. So Paul didn't want to issue a command. He could have done that. He had every authority to do that. And you know what? The elders of this church, we could have mandated something much more strict. We could have done that. 
And we believe that we have the authority from the Lord uh, to make policy for our church. But what we chose instead was to appeal to you to do what you believe is right, trusting you to act in good conscience towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because here's the thing, love cannot be coerced. You cannot force someone to love their neighbor. Love is free. It's got to be free. We can't impose a love mandate on the church. But we can appeal to your conscience to act according to what you believe is loving. So we're the church. We're the, we're the body of Christ. And Christ's body should not be divided, but unified. So then let us freely choose to love each other and pursue what makes for peace and mutually build each other up. Let us not pass judgment on each other. Let us not despise each other. Let's show respect for one another because we're going to see things differently. And each of you have the right to be fully convinced in your own minds. And at the same time, to not act simply to please yourself. I don't want to do that, so I'm not going to. Well, don't act just to please yourself. Think about others and consider what, what are the effects of my actions on other people. And to recognize each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. All of this is from Romans 14. God will judge, and he will judge the intents and motives of our heart too. So therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, you are not divided. We are your body. May we not divide from one another. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, God, for, for speaking to us about such complicated issues that have such far-reaching application. And Lord, we ask you that the, the unity of a fellowship of the body of Christ will be made manifest among us. Lord Jesus, now as we celebrate communion, we are celebrating table fellowship, welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us. This is a celebration not only of the gospel, but that the common meal, we are commonly nourished, fed by the finished work of Christ, and that is the basis of our unity. So now, Lord, may we enjoy table fellowship for the glory of God. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.